was a little longer than we thought, but hey, it is what it is. We are who we are. <laughs> <laughs> Every sports fan has an opinion. Well, these are ours. Ours. Welcome to Brock and Pep's unsportsmanlike convo. And here are your hosts, Brock Fleming and Pep Cariotti. Welcome, welcome all to another episode of Brock and Pep's unsportsmanlike convo. I am your co-host. Pierre Pep Cariotti, and uh, on the other end of the horn here, I got Brock Fleming, B-Boy, how you doing? I'm hanging in there, bud, how you doing? I am okay. Uh, you just brought up a point right before we uh, clicked on air tonight about uh, UFC, Maybe the only sports that we've had in, it's going to be two months actually since all sports ended, so uh, are you are you pumped? Are you feeling it? I know you're looking up where it was at. It's in where is it being held? It's in Jacksonville, Florida. Okay, who's the main eventer? Uh, the main event is Tony Ferguson versus Justin Gaethje. Uh, I don't even know how to pronounce his last name. My interest in it was because I remember hearing all of the rumors that UFC and Dana White had rented or purchased an island that they were going to be doing live events from. And that got my curiosity up. I do enjoy UFC. It's not the same without St. Pierre in it for me. But um, I was really curious to see us. Oh, it's actually tonight. I took a look and it's Jacksonville, Florida. So I'm curious to see if there's going to be fans there or what the rules are in terms of hosting this event. But the fact that we have live sports again is an encouraging step in the right direction. I have to agree. On my way home today from buying groceries, I did hear something on the Team 1200 about... uh, uh, they must have been picking up an American feed. Maybe there was a media outlet that sort of semi-criticized the fact that they're going ahead with this. Uh, I, I didn't hear the criticism. I didn't read it. But apparently, Daniel White kind of lost it on uh, this particular media outlet, who supposedly is a big advocate of the UFC and a big supporter. So if I'm Dana White, I'm easy on the criticism. Okay, it's a sensitive time. People are sensitive. You can't be sensitive about this stuff. You're about to make a gazillion dollars in pay-per-view or whatever. Just like try to say the right things if you can. You represent a sport that's doing quite well, and he, I'm sure he makes a ton of money off UFC. So easy on the criticism. I the, the guy, the way he was explaining it was like, hey, we don't really, we weren't really coming at him. We were just sort of expressing our concern, and the one guy tested positive, and so we wrote about it, yeah. and White uh, went berserk. Yeah, uh, I wouldn't totally agree with Dana White's response to that. Generally, he's uh, a little bit more. I don't want to say politically correct, but he knows how to play the media game. And uh, obviously he does it extremely well. But to sort of come at somebody if they're they're questioning that, I get he's probably feeling a lot of that from a variety of different sources. And maybe it all just lashed out on the one guy. Um, but I'm, I'm sitting here too, wondering how's it going to be? Is it too soon? Is it, you know, the fact that it's in Jacksonville, Florida, I, was, I thought that that uh, I was surprised by it. I was I was looking for it to be overseas somewhere or in the middle of nowhere where, you know, they've taken, you know, the amount of money they've made and took all the precautions to make sure everybody who's on that island who's participating is tested ne- negative for this. And, uh, you know, then you televise it worldwide. That's fine. But if you're doing it in the middle of the States, which, you know, to my knowledge is still kind of a hotbed, it's still spreading. So maybe it isn't the right time. 
Yeah, I you know I'm indifferent. I think uh, like like we're dealing with here in Ottawa and Canada for ex- for the most part. Like we need to uh, we need to do it right the first time. There's you don't get a real second chance at this because we could end up right where we are in October. And I don't know about you, but I need sports soon, and I don't want to be end up in October uh, not having NFL or we're still waiting on the NFL or or the NBA or the NHL. Uh, you know, or by that time it's supposed to be MLB playoffs. So, like, I don't want to be back here in October saying, hey, everything's the world shut down again because we came back too fast. You know, it's going to get to a point. If you ever hear me come on and say, you know what, soccer's back in action and I am glued to the television (laughs) set, then you know I'm in a bad spot and I am dying for some sort of competitive (laughs) sport to return. But at this point, I would still not watch soccer if given the opportunity. My outlet seems to be video games as of late. That's my way of uh, competing somehow. I, I got to say this, though. I got to give a big shout out to RDS, the uh, French sister station of TSN. They've gone ahead and decided to te- uh, televise the, uh, I, I believe it's going to be the 2020 summer season of Mini Putt. And to the commentators, <laughs> I, don't know the, I don't know the one guy, but the other guy is Carl Carmody. Uh, Carl Carmody is the Muhammad Ali of mini putt. Um, you know, his clips are all over YouTube. Anyway, we've all played mini putt. I think there was there one in Elmer. There's yeah, there's mini putts in Elmer. It was probably the hardest track in the Udaway region. It had a windmill. You had to lock in a ball in a windmill and hopefully that it rolls down on its rotation and lands in the perfect. (laughs) Anyway, it was probably, uh, a 72 strokes to be par on that mini putt, but there was one in Elmer. Well, the one on this tour, the, there's an actual mini putt in Gatineau that they, it's, they're all the same, right? They're cookie cutters. Like the, all the holes are, are like from one to 18. They're all the same banks. So it's not like you're, you're playing a different course every time, every, every week. It's all the same course, just a different location. So I know there was one in Gatineau and it's, 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 you know, there's some, uh, I get there's some strategy to it, I guess. I don't know. Like some holes you, you just can't get a hole in one, so you gotta bank it and make sure you get your par. I don't know. Anyway, it's something to watch. If you like golf, if you like putting, it's kinda cool. I have no I don't know. Well, yeah, I'm grasping at straws here, but very much so grasping at straws when you're like, Oh, I, I like golf, so I'm gonna watch mini putt. No, but what I will watch in terms of a fan and a, and somebody who can appreciate golf is gonna be the match on May twenty fourth between <laughs> Phil Mickelson and Tom Brady versus Tiger Woods and Peyton Manning. I'm glued oh, in, sign me up, I'm watching it from start to finish. I hated the first one because they took out all of the fun aspect. When you have $9 million on the line, it seemed they got too serious. They were had their own caddies. There was a lot less um, socializing on the course where you anticipated a guy like Phil Mickelson, who's a, an avid gambler and wants to put money on holes and stuff. There'd be a lot more of that in-game action. And I'm hoping that with the two quarterbacks involved that that will sort of ramp up and because it's for charity i think it's going to be a little less serious and a little bit more fun which uh, i'm very much excited for manning i find peyton manning hilarious he's one of the most the funniest athletes that i can remember and um yeah and tom brady's just going to attract some attention to say the least but i like to see manning uh take it i'm a big fan of peyton and manning always have been he's great on the mic uh, well-spoken, classy guy. But I think that first go-around, that was Mickelson and Tiger, right? That first yeah. go-around, was, it was so overhyped that it, only, it was destined to fail. 
even if it was a, su- a success, it was destined to never meet the expectation of the media because it was blown up to like epic proportions. And, uh, I, you know, I think this is going to be kind of cool. I like the, I like the fact that the, you know, it's Brady Manning and their history goes back. What, you know, 15 years of competition. Right. So that'll be kind of cool. And they're good guys and it'll be, it'll be, it'll be good. I, again, I'm not, I'm not, not going to watch it. Um, so you're going to watch it. it. I'm going to watch it. Yeah. Okay. I'm going to watch it. Yeah. That's not a, it's not a pay-per-view event, is it? I haven't done any research uh, on that. The first go around it was now the fact that it's for charity, I'd be surprised if it wasn't. Um, yeah, I paid for it the first time. I'll likely pay for it the second time. Um, again, I'm saving money on parking from going to work, so I might as well spend it on watching Tiger Woods and hey. Manning team up. Yeah, man. Yeah, man. Uh, today's show uh, is going to be all about uh, guys who were drafted. I mean, if you look at actually Manning and, and Brady, complete opposite ends of the spectrum. One was drafted number one, and one was drafted almost next 199. to last, right? Yeah. We can't, nobody lets us forget that yes. Brady was drafted 199th. So our show theme today is, is going to be dealing with draft, draft uh, busts specifically. But before we get into that, I do want to say that there, there's been some chatter on, I think, I think MLB specifically has now started talking about, you know, a plan to start the season. Um, there's some word traveling that they're working on a three-division alignment that's going to group teams into divisions that are uh, geo- geographically close to each other so that teams don't have to fly like you just drive to the next city okay and um so it's a realignment i know I, I was reading a bit about the jays and they'll be in a division that's you know obviously like i'm assuming i'm assuming the tigers like uh, cities that are close to toronto um they'll place them all and uh, so geographically it'll make sense uh, how does it now baseball being like a classic you know, it has a lot of heritage and a lot of uh, a tradition. How do you feel? I don't know if you're a traditionalist at all, but if you are, how do you feel about baseball really flipping the whole entire league upside down just to get a season out? Like, uh, I'm assuming it's going to be a shortened season as well. So how do you feel about that? The realignment, putting NL and AL teams together, what are they? I guess they're just going to eliminate the DH. Like, how, what's your thought on, on that? Are you just happy that baseball might be back, period? Well, I think from a, a league standpoint, like we're we're listening to leagues like the CFL talk about very likely not having a season, and not having a season if they don't have bailout could very well spell the end of the league. Who knows? Like, there's not a lot of support there uh, financially for these guys to afford to to go a whole season without uh, the the sport. Now, baseball is a little bit different. Um, you know, we're we're in a completely different time right now and i think traditionalists or not if you want to see baseball then there's going to be concessions that you have to live with and i think any baseball is probably better than no baseball and it may actually attract some other fans there's a not a race to be first but when you think of the nfl draft and how uh widely viewed it was because it was the only thing on television if you start throwing baseball back on guys that don't necessarily watch baseball may be tuning in to say you know what i'm gonna watch it and it's uh you know they hype up the the realignment and the al versus nl and what the rule changes are and um you know uh maybe the uh the blue jays are playing the the cubs more often or something like that because geographically it makes more sense i'm 
you know, I'm not in front of a map, so it may not make sense. I think you still got to cross a big body of water. But anyway, it's, it's one of those things you say, you know what, I would like to see that. You don't get to see that every year. So I'm, I'm for it. I'm all for it. And I couldn't agree more in the, in the sense of like, I'd rather watch some baseball than no baseball. I'd rather watch an empty stadium than nothing. Like, I, I actually think there could be a huge benefit to watching these teams, uh, whatever league it is, play without fans, just to be able to hear some of the banter, some of the coaching, hockey and, and football and uh, basketball probably more specific. But yeah. it'd be kind of cool to be able to hear the plays. And I mean, if you go to a Carlton Ravens basketball game and you sit low enough, you can hear the banter. You can hear the the play calling. You can hear the communication on the defensive end. You can hear the coaches making calls. It's a whole different experience than, you know, being uh, thirty rows up and just just relying on the game action to get entertained. So, I, I'm all for it. I'm I'm with you. I'd rather watch some than none. There's some like Milan Lucic has talked about that, talking about uh, playing with no fans. And when you're in a rink, what you say on the ice echoes pretty good in an empty arena. So he's a guy who's a notorious, a bit of a shit talker, you know, that kind of stuff. So he's, you know, brought it up that if there is no fans in the stands, they got to probably be a bit more conscious about monitoring what they say and how they say it and who they say it to um, because the fact that it'll get uh, heard by a lot more people or microphones. Um, The Blue Jays, if they are going to be continuing their season with no fans, I think their best bet is to call up the Argonauts and find out how they've been doing playing in front of no fans for so many years (laughs) and just trying to use that mental approach to it. Press the horn. I don't have access to the horn. (laughs) Oh, nice. (laughs) You know what? Which Actually, it brings me right back to the CFL. I did want to mention the CFL. Uh, I'm I'm super concerned. The CFL, I don't know the exact number, but it's it's got to be close to seventy or eighty uh, percent. They rely on uh, fan revenue, ticket oh, sales. Yeah. It's is, this is no joke. Um, I I love the CFL. I always have, and I always will. It's v- it's very Canadian. Uh, the the league, the rules, the the tradition, the team scope. These teams date back hundred and twenty years or whatever it is. It's it's cool. There's not many leagues in the world that can, can that can boast that. The CFL, as far as I'm concerned, they actually lost a lot of money last year. But from an overall standpoint, in terms of new stadiums and league marketing and uniforms, and you know, drawing a couple of really high end talented guys in the CFL, quarterbacks are getting paid big bucks. The league was kind of it's it's been trending in the right direction for a few years now. Yeah. Randy, I'm a big Randy Ambrosi fan, huge. You know, he's he's got he spearheaded this this uh, initiative to get football on the Atlantic uh, Atlantic coast. You know, he's done more in in a couple of years than the guy before him did in five six years. So I'm a, I'm I'm worried. I'm upset. Uh, I look at a team like Regina, the 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 fan the taxpayer owned the team. So if there's no money coming in, I mean, their taxes are going to go up because that building still has to be paid. They haven't paid the building yet. Well, then from that aspect, I mean, Green Bay's in the same kind of boat, like those type of teams. I don't know if baseball is in like that. I don't think so. But, um, yeah, it's, uh, you know, I was thinking about the other day, and I I had no answer for it. I'm wondering what the legal obligation is for the teams in terms of the contracts they have that are already in place with guys. So somebody, you know, who's sitting, who's a signed player is expecting to get paid this year. The contract dictates you're supposed to get paid this year. Now it's out of the CFL's 
hands, I guess, you know, but are they legally obligated to pay them or are there clauses in there? And I didn't even, I should, I have my old contracts. I should look into it and see if it says anything about, um, you know, natural disasters or like things out of the least control that says, you know what, we just, there's, you know, if there was a war and all these guys got drafted, we couldn't open borders, whatever. And they say, well, we're not going to be paying you. There must be some clause in there. I have to look, but anyway, I don't know that. I don't know if you know that of, uh, would you be liable to pay a guy in this situation? I actually think this is all a learning experience for everybody. I think people are actually learning on the fly. Uh, does a pandemic, is a pandemic, uh, you know, uh, an act of God? Like we don't, you know, yeah. where does it fit in the, uh, in the realm? Is it's not a tornado that, that destroyed all the stadiums. So it's hard to, it's really hard to understand how they're going to approach this. I mean, they've asked the federal government for 150 million bucks. Um, each team's operational costs are, are huge. How much of that 150 mil is contracts? I don't know. I think they asked for 30 mil for up front, and then the rest of the money sort of spread out. I'm assuming that's for payroll. So this is big trouble, and the CFL cannot afford to have a whole season disappear without some financial compensation. So I think if I read Ambrosi correctly, he said the likelihood of of there being a season is very, very unlikely. Of there not being a season is very good. Yeah. Um, the best case scenario will be a very, very shortened season where they're going to lose a ton of money. So, you know, but I mean, it's going to be some revenue at the very least. But I mean, he's he's laid it out black and white. We need uh, a season. And if we don't, we need money. We need federal government money. So uh, Lord knows, man, it's so hard. There's so many people who don't watch football who think, you know, it's just a sport and these guys are millionaires. I think they've got it all wrong. Like the CFL isn't the NFL. These guys don't make millions. You've got a, you've got a handful of players on each team that might make a, a few more bucks than the rest, but the average salary is 54K. All right. All right. These That's, are average workers for the, for the majority of the league. These are guys that are, you know, year to year, they're not banking stuff. They're not retiring after their career's over. They're getting into the workplace or they're, they've yeah. got a job outside of this as well, just to, yeah. to, to maintain. They love the game. They love the sport. Um, you know, maybe they have bigger aspirations of making it to the NFL at some point, but in the CFL, it is not a, uh, a get rich and retire type league for the majority of the players. Um, that being said, it's, they're in a tough situation cause it's not even, a and you know, the NFL to a point as well, but the CFL is so reliant on, uh, American content as well, that it's, it's not even one country's got to get their shit together. You need to have both at a, at a sustainable level to allow cross borders and then to allow guys from the States to come back up and get back to work. So yeah, it doesn't look great for the CFL considering this should be, what is it? We're in May, mid May or beginning of May. Uh, rookie camp would have happened already. They would have been working on training camp pretty darn soon, if not already. So, um, yeah, it's uh, it's not looking good for the CFL. No, uh, there are a handful of teams in the uh, NBA have announced that they're going to be opening up their training complexes. That doesn't mean anything. That just means that they're opening up the complex for guys to get uh, get some shots in and uh, and maybe improve their cardio a little bit. They've been sitting around for a long time. But, they did that uh, in Ontario. The Leafs and San, like the the pro yeah. sports in Ontario can open up their stuff for internal people only, and it's got to take yeah. very high uh, sanitation uh, regiments and stuff too. But um, whatever, it's a step in the right direction. Hopefully. You know, we just we ease into it and everything lines up and goes as smooth as we want to, as we hope it does. Um, yeah. And then the rest of us can kind of get back into uh, 
you know, a bit more of an active lifestyle, which would be great considering, uh, you know, this, uh, they say this, uh, quarantine can go one of three ways. It can go hunky, chunky, or drunky. And, uh, I am definitely <laughs> the middle one at this point. <clears throat> well, All this right. weather, if I could throw another one in, it's, it's been funky. It's crazy, funky, literally snowing, sunny, snowing, sunny, snowing, sunny all day today. It was crazy. It is Saturday, May the 9th, and it's supposed to be minus 11 with the wind chill tonight. So go figure. Um, the snow didn't even look like snow tonight. It looked like fake snow. Yeah, yeah. Someone's it looked like a joke on us. Yeah, it looked like Amazon styrofoam packing thing just went nuts <laughs> and they were blowing it everywhere. All right, let's take a break. Let's get into our biggest bus. Uh, quick shout out to Larry Pollock. It's his birthday today. Happy birthday, big Larry. Larry was uh, the uh, captain, team manager of the men's baseball league uh, team that I was participating in for a while ago uh, with the Dukes. Mike Pignat was part of the Dukes. Uh, anyway, Larry is the orchestrator of that whole team and uh, great guy, hilarious. Anyway, he's an avid listener, so shout out, Larry. Happy birthday. Hey. Stay home, stay safe. You're older. We'll celebrate when uh, this all goes away. Do we do we have a happy birthday button or not really? Eh? A happy song, happy birthday song. You're gonna have to stop calling me out on things I don't have um, <laughs> during the show, but I'll work on that. All right, we're going to break. <laughs> One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. And we are back. And we are talking about uh, pro sports' biggest busts. Now, Brock and I, we excluded, I mean, I, I, at least I did. I, Brock, I'm sure you did too. We excluded the NHL and the Major League Baseball drafting. Uh, if for any reason, here's my rationale anyways. When you look at Major League Baseball and hockey, they have minor league systems that are extensive so you can draft a kid let's say let's use baseball you could draft a a 16 year old in the first round and he's not going to sniff your major league team until he's played a ball double a triple a and then that's assuming he's produced so you could see a kid play three four five six years in the minors before he sniffs uh, uh anything in the majors in hockey Unless you are Connor McDavid or Lafreniere or a highly skilled guy, top two, top three. Sidney Crosby. Sidney Crosby. And even then, teams are now thinking, ah, he'd benefit if, we, if he goes to our minor, uh, minor affiliate. And I'm not, talking the, I'm not talking about the Q or I'm not talking about the OHL. I'm talking about each team has a minor league affiliate where they send their guys to, for, some, for some work. And Kutkiniemi uh, for, the, for the Habs is a good example of picked fourth or fifth overall. You know, brought up too soon. Now he's back in the minors, and so there's a there's a far more extensive minor league program in hockey and in uh, baseball. If you look at football, though, I mean, your number one draft can come in, and is he, he may not change your fortunes, but he's gonna he could play right away and make a difference. Uh, in basketball, it's even more so. Those guys they only they only field they only dress fifteen players. Uh, sorry, they dress twelve. They have 15 on, a, on an active roster. I mean, if you're a uh, number of f- well, one through 10, you could come in and start for some teams. So the impact that a player has, in, I find, in football and in basketball is more immediate, and it could be bigger. I'm not saying that draft picks in both those sports always pan out. We're actually going to talk about how they don't pan out by uh, naming our – and I think we'll start with – why don't we start with basketball, Brock? 
Sure. Why don't, I'm going to start with, uh, and I, I know you did too. I only was able to find eight major busts. And I'm curious to know what your eight are. Brock and I have not shared our answers. So we're going to start with basketball. I'm going to start with you, Brock. I want you to name your top eight draft busts in the NBA. Uh, you can go into as de- much detail or as little detail as you want. I'll just name them from eight to one. And it will, your All last right. one will be the, your biggest bust. I got you. Okay, so the NBA is not going to be as detailed as my NFL one. And perfect. when I look at criteria for what I was choosing, um, basically everybody that I put in there for both of my lists are people that um, NBA not as much, but football for sure was definitely people who were um, somebody I watched in college or I had high expectations for them before they got into the draft as well. And on a personal note, I'm like, okay, this guy should be good in the NFL, yada, yada. Or uh, again, some connection to it. So I'm not putting in um, you know, I have an Archie Griffin in the notables for the football, but I never watched him. All I know is his stats. And so you're kind of going off what other people are saying, but I was going through this of my recollection of guys that I'm like, you know what? That guy was drafted, but I, he ended up sucking. <clears throat> All right. The NBA top eight draft bus. My number eight was one of my personal favorites. Uh, in college, but it was Robert tractor trailer who went ah, six to the box. Yeah, he's uh, whatever. He's a guy that I remember watching because he was my size, probably with a lot more ups and uh, you know some pretty darn good feet out there. Anyway, that was uh, Uni- my number eight. University of Michigan. Yeah. Number seven, I have Sean Bradley. Uh, I believe he was one <laughs> of the monsters on uh, Space Jam. <laughs> so <laughs> seven six. Yeah, seven six, and went to the seventy sixers. But yeah, he went second overall in '93. Uh, a guy who's seven six and doesn't pan out. I know he's a white guy, but let's be honest. If I can, uh, if I can talk about Sean Bradley for one quick second. Yeah, you know seven, what? Six. Feel free elaborate on guys like that because uh, I'm not gonna. He ended up having a. Re- he actually ended up having a really good career. I, I would put him in. He was in originally on my list, um, but he ended up having a, a half decent career. He was a bust because people's expectations of him. I mean, he was he's seven six, one hundred and ten pounds. He was a stick. He had no mobility. He, he had wasn't no really one hundred ten pounds, was he? He was peanuts. He was. Oh, he I know was he a, was lean, but I'm just like he couldn't have been one hundred ten pounds. I'd, I'd be interested to if he actually. You know what? We, we'll look that up when we go to our next break. But he, you know, he ended up having a good career. And he ended up finishing with Dallas, playing alongside Dirk Nowitzki. And uh, and was very like was actually quite effective, but he would he was on my original top top eight, um, and a bust only because he was drafted so high. So anyway, continue. It says one hundred twenty five kilograms. What's that? About two hundred fifty. No, it's one point five. Two seventy five. That doesn't sound right. Two seventy five. That's good. Good math. Yeah, two seventy five is what they said. At seven wow. six, you're two seventy five. Like that's. That's good. I'd kill to be 275 now, and I feel like I'd be really lean looking. Add he, another foot to me. He he actually looked like Manute Bowl on the on the court. Like this was skinny and awkward. He, he just thought one one wrong cut and his leg was going to shatter in half. And well, I could, I could tell them apart if I needed to. Um, <laughs> <laughs> number six, I have <laughs> Jay Williams from Duke. Uh-huh. Number two, going to the Bulls in 2002. Um, that's my number six. Any elaboration there? You're good. 
he's on my list, so I'll elaborate when I give it to you. All right. Uh, number five, I got uh, Big Darko. Number two in 2003 to the Pistons, Darko Milicic. Milicic. Yeah. Ugh. Uh, number four, so these are the first of two in a row that were Michael Jordan's issues. Uh, Adam Morrison from Gonzaga, the third uh, overall pick in 2006 to the Bobcats. He was MJ's first uh, pick for uh, when he was managing the Bobcats there. Yep. Uh, number three, I got Kwame Brown, who was the first overall pick <laughs> to the Wizards. Again, a Michael Jordan issue. Um, and then my top two, I got number two, I got Greg Oden. Big. The guy who looks like he's 90, but he's eight feet tall. OSU, another yeah. Ohio State guy, uh, a big bust. First overall, 2007 to Portland. Uh, drafted right before Kevin Durant. <laughs> I remember there was that big argument, who are you going to take? Um, and Portland went with Greg Oden. And number one, uh, the Canadian. Uh, first overall, 2003, to the Cleveland Cavaliers, Anthony Bennett. Was my number one. Oh, I for- oh you know what? I totally forgot about him. He... Oh, what yeah. a yeah! You know, if you look back at that the Cavaliers, the, those four years that he was uh, LeBron was in Miami, they had high draft picks for I think three of those four years, and uh, it ended up with like Tristan Thompson, Anthony Bennett, uh, Wiggins, and Irving. I think were the were the picks. And can you imagine if they were ended up? And now, if you think about it, all they have left from those guys is Tristan Thompson because they ended yeah. up trading Wiggins for Love. Irving's no longer there. Like. Yeah, ownership really blew it. That's an inch. Oh, I forgot about Anthony Bennett. Yeah, he would fall. In, uh, I'm going to stick with my list, but right. I forgot about Anthony Bennett. Wow, you know what they? You know they pegged Anthony Bennett to be a, like a, a mini Charles Barkley. Eh? In college, he was so much just bigger and stronger than everybody else that he looked like he was a, a man child. But he didn't really develop an outside game. Barkley had an outside game, and uh, it just didn't pan out. I think he got injured too, and he just he just never developed. He actually he's actually with a D uh, D League team right now. I don't think he's ever going to sniff the NBA again. But he's he signed a team signed him last year. I'd have to look it up. It might have been the Warriors. He's sitting somewhere in the D League, but and we can look that up. Anyways, I am going to give you my eight. Uh, a lot of repeats. You named off a few. I think you you forgot one that most people might consider on the list. But I'll start with my number eight. Um, Hashim Thabit. Second overall for Memphis in 2009. He was 7'3". Played for UConn. Uh, right. he, was, he was dubbed the next Dikembe Mutombo. <clears throat> Good shot blocker, but he just never panned out. And you know who he was picked ahead of? Steph Curry and James Harden. Yeah. <laughs> Steph Curry, I get. Steph Curry, no, I don't think anybody expected Steph Curry to be that good. Coming out of college, I, his tournament was amazing. His when he was Davidson, like he was shooting lights out. But I also I never felt like so I was rooting for him, but I never felt like okay, this is who he is, and he's going to continue this to the next level. It's like this kid is having an amazing tournament. His stock is going to rise, but not going to be a superstar at the next level. Anyway, that's my take on it. But two thousand nine, the league was just starting to like you know because you know Curry when he got to the Warriors was playing alongside Monte Ellis and David Lee. And that's when they sort of started going some run and gun. Then Clay Thompson came a little later, but it was initially Curry and Monte Ellis and they were up and down the court and playing that fast paced game. And that's when the league started to turn back to, you know, the 2006 Suns, the small ball. And, uh, but again, yeah, you're right. Like hindsight's 2020, right? 
Hashim to beat 7-3, had a good tournament. Big, big man, 7-3. There's not many 7-3 guys floating around. But uh, tough call. And, you know, James Harden is an all-world scorer. We, we, we diss him about his traveling and all that. But, I mean, step-back threes with a guy and you're right in your mush and you're scoring 50 a night, it's pretty impressive any way you slice yeah. it. So, yeah. Anthony uh, Mike, Bennett, sorry. Anthony Bennett looks like he signed a one-year deal with the Houston Rockets but was waived during training camp. That was in 2019. That's the last I have of him. Last year, yeah. So he's still floating around, still trying to make a career for himself. I, I hope he do, I hope he comes back. I hope a team takes a flyer on him. It's always good to see uh, Canadian kids, more Canadian guys. It's NBA. If, it's, if he's a first overall pick, uh, he's fine. And, and there have been – listen, there have been guys – there have been guys disappear and then sort of make a renaissance uh, later in their older age. They come back and, uh, and have some sort of career for themselves. So uh, anyway, uh, my number seven guy, you mentioned him, Jay Williams uh, from Duke. Drafted second overall in 2002 by the Bulls. Had a really, really strong rookie season and then crashed his motorbike and severed all three ligaments in his, uh, in his knee. And he never played again. A pretty sad story, mm-hmm. actually. And mm-hmm. he, he has a hard time talking about it. He, uh, he'll, if you bring it up to him, they never ask him in interviews. He's actually uh, works for ESPN, but he, they yeah. don't talk. He doesn't talk about it. He just starts to cry. And, you know, he was a uh, really, really, really good, solid point guard. Um, geez, the Bulls would have had him and Derek Rose. Good Lord. Yeah. Anyway, um, my number six, uh, you named Adam Morrison, third overall by the then called Bobcats, Charlotte Bobcats, 2006. His last year in Gonzaga, he averaged 28 points a game. So, you know, there was a pedigree there. Um, he tore his ACL in his second season. He had a pretty good rookie season, but he tore his ACL out, and he was never the same after that. He won two rings with the Lakers when they had the Pau Gasol after Shaq. Mm-hmm. But uh, he was just a bench warmer. He never played, really. And uh, I think he went over to Europe to play a couple of years. Um, Michael Jordan's first ever pick. So, yeah, you know, I said that I, there's a theme there. Yeah. Not, not good. Um, <clears throat> now was his my ne- hair. <laughs> my, my next one is uh, 2001 Kwame Brown, first overall by the Wizards. He was immature. Uh, this was on his profile. Immature and lacked all the fundamental skills. Uh, I don't know how a scout overlooks that when someone says he lacks all the fundamental skills. Uh, I don't right. care if you're seven one. You need to be able to dribble a basketball and shoot it. So um, MJ picked him. You know he, he couldn't palm a basketball. In, uh, at that size, it was pretty... At 7'1", you can't palm a basketball. The only other guy I could think of who was that tall, who had small hands and couldn't palm a basketball, was Kevin Willis. I don't know if you remember Kevin Willis. He played for the Raptors in 2000, but he was mainly known for playing with the Hawks, Yeah, with Dominique Wilkins. He had little Raptor arms. It was, it's the, if you ever want to see Kevin Willis, Google Kevin Willis. His arms are so short, but he was a beast. Anyway, <laughs> on to the next. Greg Oden, you named it. First overall by Portland. Again, taken ahead of Kevin Durant. His knee was never solid in college, but um, his, his bust status is 100% injury-related. He, he was a good player. He, he was actually, he was, uh, I think, was it him that, sh- he's left-handed, but he shot free throws right? Like, he had skill. Um, but, you know, he just, his knees never held up. And he tried to make a brief comeback after that, but it just, I mean, and again, you know, Kevin Durant ends up being all-world. Who? You just never know, right? Nobody's going to blame Portland for taking him. They needed a big guy at the time. They had Brandon Roy. They had scoring. How do you feel about Greg Oden? Look, you have a look on your face. Because I was Googling uh, what's up, Willis, and his arms are not that Kevin. short. Kevin Willis. What, what <laughs> yeah, you talking about, Willis? 
His arms aren't that short. <laughs> okay. okay. Um, All right. Yeah, Greg Oden. On. Yeah, whatever. I have a distaste for Ohio State. Always have. Always will. And so the fact that Oden got picked first overall, I thought okay. And uh, so the fact that he's a he's a bust was, uh, I don't know, gave me some more ammunition for talking crap to my Ohio State friends. You know who he looked like? He actually, <clears throat> on the court, when he was healthy, he looked like Embiid. He was built like Embiid, big and big shoulders and like a man, man among boys, but just never panned out. Speaking of man among boys. He looks my, like Danny Glover in like the last, <laughs> <laughs> the last movie he made, <laughs> whatever that is. <laughs> Die Hard with a Vengeance? I guess, whatever. Uh, Whenever he's old, he looks like, anyway, Danny Glover, old Danny Glover. Anyway. And he was only like 20. 1998. The Clippers, then owned by Donald Sterling, the the notorious racist pig who just ran his franchise right right down the toilet. He drafted Michael Oluwakandi, the Candyman. Seven foot, he was a project. He, a lot like Kwame Brown, I mean, he only started playing organized basketball when he was 18. So you draft a guy just basically because he's seven feet. You know nothing about him. There was a, <laughs> if I, when I tell you the list of guys that were drafted ahead of him, you're going to be like, what, what were they thinking? Because he really had showed, didn't show that much in college to be drafted number one. Um, he ended up turning himself into a decent shop locker, played alongside KG in, in Minnesota for a couple of years, had some success there. But really, you know, for, as a number one overall pick, you know, he, he's got to be, in many circles, he's the biggest bust in NBA history. Um, he was taken ahead of Paul Pierce, Vince Carter, and Dirk Nowitzki. So, you know, it just goes to show you that what the, the Clippers have, they're scouted, they didn't have a scouting department. They had an, a racist owner. Nobody wanted to be there. It was a toxic environment. So, uh, and my, my second to last or second to best biggest bust is Darko Milicic, you named him, mm-hmm. second overall by the Pistons. Uh, the, it's the scouts' fault entirely. They, they just totally misjudged this guy. A seven-footer, everybody wanted him to be the next Dirk Nowitzki. He didn't have an outside game. Uh, you know, Detroit won a title with him, but he barely played. Um, he ended up playing 10 seasons, but he never, never really got it going. And, you know, guys taken before him were Mello, Bosch, and Wade. So, you know, if you look at, imagine Bosch on that Pistons team or Wade, good lord! But mm. it, they did what they did. They still wanted a title, so maybe they didn't need that extra superstar. And who knows? And my top bust is not really a bust. He actually ended up carving a half decent career for himself. He's only a bust because of the guy that was drafted uh, uh, after him is Sam Bowie of the Blazers in 1984. Baba Bowie. Baba Bowie. Unfortunately, <laughs> unfortunately, Sam Bowie uh, was drafted before. Michael Jordan. So he'll always be remembered for that. He blew his knee out, never really had a, a, the career that was the Blazers anticipated. But again, in 84, they had Clyde Drexler. They had guys that played Jordan's position. So, you know, they, they drafted by need. Even to this day, nobody really criticizes the draft itself because they already had guys that played Jordan's position. So, but you look back, it would have been nice to have MJ and Drexler on the court at the same time. But those are my top, I think, was that nine? My top nine NBA draft busts. So uh, why don't we take a quick break, catch our breath, and when we come back, we're going to talk about the NFL's, I have, I have 10 full uh, predictions. And uh, Brock, you can, uh, you can start yours off when we come back from break. What do you think? Works for me. Let's do it. Let's do it. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight.
Okay, NBA bus done. Now we're getting into the real stuff. The NFL bus. Pep, you have ten. I do have ten. There, and I it could I could have had fifty. You know, yeah, it was hard defi- to rank. Them. What's defined as <laughs> What's defined as a bust? You know, you could really it, it's it's wide open. You know. Okay, let me ask you this before we start anything. What are you considering a bust? A bust to me is a guy who's drafted super high and just doesn't live up to expectations, either doesn't play or fizzles out of the league completely or eats himself out of the league. But a guy who you spend, uh, uh, you, know how, you know how teams covet these top 10 picks, guys who just don't have long careers and aren't very good when they are drafted. Okay. Um, I want to check when he got drafted, but a guy like Aaron Hernandez, is he considered a bust? Let's say, so I got to check and see. I think he went a little bit later than what I'm thinking because he had all those issues to begin with. But let's say he got drafted, you know, where he should have been, top 10 in the first round, goes to jail for murder. Is he a bust because of that? Uh, I think he had... Wow. I think he had just long enough of a career to be considered not a bust. You know, um, for me, it has to be a, an early pick, like a first round pick for it to be, you know, in the bust conversation. Um, but didn't he, I think he, didn't he play long enough? He went in the fourth his? round. So it's tough. To, like you can't say a fourth rounder is a bust. I, I could, no. But, um, yeah, I guess that was just a question I was wondering. Uh, would that be considered? Let's, you know, I guess, is there a time limit? You say, okay, well, you only killed somebody after four years is okay, or if he had done it a little earlier. Anyway, not to get into not joking about murdering and stuff like that, but I'm just saying, like, somebody like that who on the field was an absolute stud, yet his career was cut short by something stupid he did. So you talked about somebody eating themselves out of the league and all that kind of stuff. Those are things that they could have still been a good player, but, um, you know, they just couldn't yeah. hack it, I guess. Sure. Um, anyway, that was just a, sure. kind of a food for thought. All right. Anyway, sure. you have your picks. Let's go yep. from 10 to 1. Yep. Oh, that's a good point you brought up, Brock, by the way. But um, I have to say for a bus, you have to be a you know, top five pick or at least in the first round. And my, my, my first guy is Art Schliester with the uh, Indianapolis Colts in 1983. All right. Um, huge gambling problem. And actually, he couldn't read defenses. And the Colts just totally missed the boat on, uh, on drafting him. Totally missed the boat. He ended up in competing with, uh, I think it was Mark Pagan. Yeah, in training camp, and Pagan just outplayed him, and Schleister never really got a chance to play. And in 87, he was banned from football altogether. So he's got to be up there. Uh, I think you pick guys fourth. with names that you like to say. Ar- <laughs> Schleister. Schleister. <laughs> and then whoever hey, the other guy, anyway. He had a cup of coffee in Ottawa. Yeah, uh, that does sound familiar, yeah. yeah. He had a cup of coffee in Ottawa, which doesn't say much for Ottawa's scouting at the time. Fuck you, Schleister. Was- yeah, that's right. He was in Ottawa. That, that does ring a bell. <laughs> It does ring a bell. I think he was there when I was a fan, when I was a kid. That was my dad. You know, we had some lean years, folks, in Ottawa. <laughs> if you're old enough to remember the Rough Riders from the 80s and 90s, uh, we had some lean years. But um, anywho, moving on, I, I actually put two guys together for my next pick. 
Um, I have Tony Mandrich and Brian Boswell sort of bunched together because they came out with so much hype. And Boz actually was half decent until Bo Jackson ran him over on the goal line. But he ended up just playing only two. I think he only played two years in the NFL, uh, drafted super high. Tony Mandrich, the incredible bulk, uh, was on steroids, came out, played for Green Bay, was awful. Um, they might have both Tony been Mandrich on steroids. Did come back and play with the Colts for years. So I, I put him lower on this list only because he actually played for the Colts and played well with that Colts team that took Pittsburgh to the um, to the AFC Championship game, uh, nineteen ninety five, when Pittsburgh lost to the Cowboys in the Super Bowl. Tony Mandrich was on Jim Harbaugh's Colts team, so he ended up having a couple of good years. He wasn't the player, obviously, people thought he was going to be. But you know, part of that was Roids. He was just such an imposing figure. I don't know if you remember him, Brock. In yeah, he's on my he list. I'll expand. Of, uh, Sports Illustrated. He's on my list. I'll expand. I uh, we're, we're having a little technical difficulty here. I can't hear you. Apparently, you're having a technical difficulty because I can hear you just fine. What oh, I was saying it. is that he's on my list, so I will expand then. And oh, what I was it. also saying when you couldn't hear me was that Bo, the the boss was probably on steroids too, because the boss's play where Bo Jackson runs him over was eerily similar to when in the program where. Um, Oh, what's the guy's name who smashed his head in the in the the window? See at the table. Up. No, at the, in the movie, the program. Oh, Latimer. When Latimer is there and he, he's off the juice, and he gets trucked, and it's slow motion, and he gets pushed into the end zone, and you know, and he vows at that point, like, <laughs> no, I'm back on it. Next day, just popping needles, like I'm not getting trucked again, and the coach Crazy. knew it anyway. That was eerily similar to that, so I don't know if the the, the boss had that effect or uh, counter steroid effect too. But anyway, okay, so you got the nine, you got Mandrich and Bo- and the boss together. Yeah, uh, for eight, I have three Browns. <laughs> I can't. What I is this? It's top I ten. Pick one. I know I couldn't pick one, but it, they, if you if you bunch <coughs> them all together, you'll see why they they're all have sort of similar paths. Um, I got Trent Richardson, Johnny Manziel, and Tim Couch. Now Tim Couch is an interesting one. Because uh, he didn't, I mean, he struggled a little bit, but he ended up actually f- getting his groove in 2002, 2003. He started playing really well, and he got hurt. And he got hurt two weeks before the end of the season, and Kelly Holcomb took over and led them to the playoffs, and they ended up losing the Steelers. But he had, Couch had a good year. So he was right. never the same after that. He backed up Brett Favre in, uh, in um, Green Bay, didn't play. And so I, I have to consider him a bust. Manziel... I actually truthfully didn't think he got a shot. Are you waiting for me to say, yeah? Yeah, no, I don't know. I want your thought. Like, I don't think I don't know. he's got a fair, fair shake in Cleveland. He, I think his he, attitude bounced him out. That's what it is. The, yeah, is that what it is? Like, I mean, obviously he, uh, uh, he, he couldn't cut it in the CFL. I, I gave up on him too quickly. Maybe they didn't, they didn't have the right, the right people to support. I mean, it was a, it was a gong show with Hugh Jackson there when he was there as their coach. So, you know, there was, he wasn't really set up for success in terms of coaching uh, and support, but you know, his attitude bounced my league and Trent Richardson, I just think was just a bad pick. All right. So there's your bottom six. What are the top four? (laughs) I'm moving on here. Moving on. Uh, Achilles Smith. I I had a hard time choosing between Achilles Smith and Kajana Carter. 
both Bengals. But uh, Smith was really his third overall, and he was supposed to you know turn around a franchise that was desperate for a quarterback. I mean, they had David Klingler for years, and Achilles Smith came out of Oregon, I believe it was. Yeah, and, same uh, draft as Tim Couch. The same draft as Tim Couch. Couch really. was one, Achilles Smith was three, and right in the middle was uh, Donovan McNabb. McNabb. So you know, what are you going to do, right? Like uh, Smith was a was a, a figure. Like he was he was big, strong arm guy, but he just. I mean, he couldn't, he wasn't accurate, couldn't even throw the deep ball accurately. So, I mean, he fizzled out real quick. So, I have him sitting at that position. Um, again, I have a whole team for my next pick, but I'll, I'll just narrow it down to Charles Rogers. Now, the Detroit Lions ended up drafting receivers like four years in a row, which is crazy. Mike Williams in 2005, Charles Rogers, second overall. Um, but Charles Rogers was just, was just nothing when Detroit needed somebody. Uh, to catch balls for them. He just wasn't the guy. Well, they didn't have anybody to throw the ball. They took Joey Harrington the year before. So they took Harrington at number three in 2002, I think it was. And then Charles Rogers was number two in 2003, wide receiver in Michigan State. So you're thinking you're getting your quarterback and your receiver. Instead, you got bust and bust. Yeah, man. You know, and that's a good point. Maybe maybe his bust status was certainly, uh, you know, um, the, the the process was sped up for him to be a bust because he didn't have anyone to throw to throw to him. So yeah, that's that's possible. And that's Harrington, Harrington. is the second Oregon State in this bust list. Oregon quarterback, sorry, not Oregon State. Oregon quarterback to be a bust on these lists. Just so everybody knows. Yeah. J- Joey Harrington. Yeah, Joey Harrington. Yeah, I never liked Joey Harrington. You know, does Marcus Mariota end up being on this bust list later on? Does uh, I never uh, from an NFL perspective? What's um, uh, the Hamilton quarterback right now, Visor. Oh, uh, ah, the guy who led him to the Super Bowl, uh, to the Great Cup. Yeah, but he got hurt. Oh my God, it's just. Anyway, yeah. continue. He's Masoli. also yeah, Masoli, another Oregon quarterback that you know didn't have his NFL opportunity. <clears throat> anyway, a long list of Oregon quarterbacks who are busts. So if you're a quarterback recruit, don't go there. I here are my and again I'm I'm going to go with bus be, uh, that I've witnessed to play. Like you mentioned it when you were talking about your NBA bus uh, that you know guys that you can relate to because you sort of seen them and you've heard about them. Uh, uh, same way for football for me. These are guys that I've all seen play, and uh, you know there might have been busts in the '70s and '60s. I, like I didn't see those guys play, so I right. can't really talk. Hundred percent. Art Schleister, I actually saw. I remember him playing in the in the uh, CFL. Stop saying story, Schleister. But. Move Schleister. on, Arch Schleister. <laughs> you're ta- you're so, speaking moistly. <laughs> <laughs> we got to get that soundbite. Uh, I'll, I'll do that next time. Um, my next bust. I, what number am I on now? I don't know. You're putting 17 per row. So okay, <laughs> I got okay. I got two more. My I've got. I had a hard time flip flopping these two, but uh, my second biggest bust overall is Ryan Leaf. Okay, and he's on he's on most lists. As number one oh, for now most I, people. Now I think our number ones are the same. But anyway. Yeah, okay, good. Very good. Uh, 1998, uh, second overall pick. 14 TDs, 36 INTs, brutal. He had a, a horrible combine. I don't know how much you invest in combine stuff, but his was his to date is still probably the worst in the, in the pro, in the, the combine's history. Mm. You know who was really bad? And whatever. Maybe from uh, apples to apples, but uh, uh, 
the right tackle for the Ravens. Big Brown there. Uh, his father played. Oh, uh, Orlando, Orlando Brown? Brown. Yeah, Orlando Brown. Yeah. Uh, hit from an O-line standpoint, his combine was horrendous. Yeah? Yeah. I remember seeing that, and I was like, wow, like that's – that's just not pretty, and I would have rathered he didn't even participate in the combine and say, I'm just going to do some one-on-ones at school because you played at Oklahoma, you had a good offense. Don't – anyway, it wasn't great. But no. I think he's a better product on the field than his draft, than his, uh, draft combine shows, so that's good. Uh, and, hey, that could have been conditioning and coaching combined, getting to the next level and getting the right coaching. You know, they, uh, the Ravens were notorious for having great coaches. They had a great – program with Ozzie Newsom uh, during the inception of their of their team but anyway uh, Ryan Leaf was just awful he was awful one in 16 team uh, did not help had a short fuse ended up you know I think we heard some of the stories after his career was over of uh, you know drug abuse and depression and so you don't know what these guys are going through Um, he was a good dude in college apparently Brian Chu was his center so Brian used to always talk pretty highly of him thought he was a great guy and still keeps in touch with him obviously and um, just thought that he fell in kind of hard times and got sort of swept into things, but sure. Uh, anyway, you're, you're playing in San Diego. There's no pressure down there because it's, it's the, the most chill city in, uh, in Cali, really. You just, you just go and play in San Diego and there's no expectations for the chargers back then. And you know, what are you going to do? Anyway, my number one biggest <clears throat> bust might be the, in the literal sense. Uh, for me, it has to be Jamarcus Russell. <laughs> First overall in 2007, and the Raiders were just a hot mess, and they were looking for a guy to, you know, just grab the bull by the horns. They had no competition. It was it was his team to take, and uh, and he blew it. He blew it. His, he didn't even show a whole lot of progress over the course of the time his time there. I think I remember seeing a Monday night game where they were playing in the snow against Denver, and he threw a game winning touchdown pass to Jerry Porter in the back of the end zone. And, I kind of thought, okay, the guy's got some mobility, and I don't know. He's young. Maybe maybe they'll improve and surround him with better players. And no, he was shit. He just got worse. He gained weight. Um, he's he's actually tried to make a comeback a couple of years ago. There was a, Did you see that video of him working out? I didn't see the video of him, but I know that uh, he had tried with a few different teams, trying for the backup spots, this and that. But in uh, 2010, he moved to Houston to work with a guy by the name of John Lucas, who's an NBA player, coach, kind of life coach, and uh, sort of partnered up with him. And then, uh, but by April 2011, so between September of one year to April 2011, Lucas was fed up with his lack of work ethic and cut ties with Russell and told him to move out of Houston. He had a workout with the Dolphins in November 2010, and he was at 292 pounds. Like that is insane. Yeah. John Lucas has helped so many people over the course of his career as a player. His son, John Lucas the Third, actually played in the NBA as well. But John Lucas was a guy who um, was addicted to drugs, and then uh, you know, sort of a reclamation project, and he got better and got help, and decided to help guys like Jamarcus Russell, you know, you know, turn their careers around. For John Lucas to say, "Hey, get the hell out of here," that's that says all I need to know about a guy. So, yep. Brock, there's my list of, of busts. There were so many. Like there were, I, you know, I, I'd throw Kajana Carter in that list, but that, those are my essentially my the biggest busts that come to mind because guys I've seen play. So anyway, the floor is yours. I'm curious to hear your list because you're the football guy, and uh, um, I'm sure I'm sure there's some guys that I've named that are on your list too. But um, yeah. the floor is yours, pal. Okay, this was 
kind of fun to go back to uh, <laughs> to thinking of you know guys that I've seen, guys I idolize, guys that I watched playing college, and I was like, this guy is a fucking stud. Can't wait for him to play in the NFL, and then he would do nothing. Um, <clears throat> we do have a lot of the same people, but I have. It took me a while to sort of narrow it down, but these are the notables. So these are just the honorable mentions that I'm going to say right now. Uh, I got RG3, quarterback for the Redskins, went number two overall in 2012. He's on my bust list. Injury bust? Doesn't matter. But would you matter or not? Would you consider that his his career derailed because he was playing really well when he until he blew his knee up? He's on your list? He's on my list. He's a notable. He's not on my top 10, but he's a notable that I'm like, never panned out, whether it's from injury specifically or what. I don't want to spend too much time on RG3, but yep. do you think if he got a chance to play now on a, on a team that put a system together like, uh, you know, like the Ravens, could he succeed if he was a Ravens starting quarterback? He's got mobility. He's got, he had speed equivalent He played to, fairly well. Like, he came in a couple times this season, did he not? Yeah, he played well. Yeah, he played well. Yeah, yeah. He still got wheels. From a Heisman trophy and what he was able to do at a school like Baylor, um, again, it's expectations, I guess. And I don't think he, he might be a journeyman. He might be able to fit in certain situations, but um, he's not the number two overall pick status, I guess. So, again, he's not in my top ten, but he's a guy that I – I know that I've watched, and I'm like, he hasn't lived up to where he should be. Factually, um, you're absolutely right. So again, we talk about you know guys that I've I've seen play, or I've you know a lot of them I've heard a lot of stories about. So like a Steve Etman is a guy who I didn't really get a chance to see play. I've seen a lot of highlights of what he's done because of what the position he played, and because he was such a big dude, and because he was also. As a defensive tackle, he was fourth in the Heisman voting at one point. Um, he lost. That was the year that Desmond Howard won it. But from being a big athletic dude, that's kind of where that connection came in. But again, this is a notable. So Steve Etman, defensive tackle for the Steve Washington Edmund, Huskies. He, he was drafted by the Colts? Uh, first overall by the Colts. That's correct. Yeah. So he, he was on that team, <clears throat> that Colts team that uh, played the Steelers in the AFC Championship with uh, Jim Harbaugh. Uh, what so a guy come out of college like him you know uh highly touted good college career comes in his first first year in the league and has a good season when he had a good year first year he was he was playing a a high level ball his first year and then falls off the cliff in year two is he a bust yeah you're not you're not signing and uh, taking a first overall pick to be a one and done thing. Those are the guys that you sign from another team for a one year. These guys that are coming in as a first overall or these top picks are getting contracts that are of longer duration and at the time had good chunk of guaranteed money. Um, so no, a one and done is a bust, 100%. Uh, Okay, so Steve Edmond, yeah. So the Colts drafted him first. They actually picked up. They actually had the second pick as well, and they drafted the Quinton Coriat, who was a linebacker from Texas A and M. Oh yeah, um, who uh, was you know pretty good. But I think they were trying to really solidify their defense, which uh, like the Lions did, picking a quarterback and receiver two years in a row, um, didn't quite pan out. Uh, 
like Edmonds' stats for his last year of Washington. Washington was ranked actually number two in the uh, the AP poll, which underneath Miami, which is extremely high for a Washington team. But he had 62 tackles, 22, 20 and a half for loss as a defensive tackle. Pretty good stats for yep. what that was. And, you know, big guy that can move around, great. He was drafted, uh, again, first. So uh, this Sean Gilbert was a defensive tackle for the Rams, third, and Desmond Howard, a wide receiver for the Redskins, who went fourth. Both were pro bowlers. The first two guys, Etman and Coriette, were not. So, again, a bit of a bust there. <clears throat> I have honorable mention, again, I think I brought that up real quickly, Archie Griffin, the running back for Ohio State. Uh, he was drafted 24th in the 1976 draft to the Bengals. The only reason is relevant is because this is the only two-time Heisman Trophy winner in college football history. So for a guy like that to kind of come through and not really produce in the NFL was, in my opinion, a bust. Not somebody I've seen, but that's why he's a, he's a notable as opposed to on my list. Yep. Uh, again, notable Lawrence Phillips, the running back for Nebraska, went sixth oh, overall tragic. to 1996 to the Rams. Um, before him were Keyshawn Johnson, USC, Kevin Hardy from Illinois, uh, Simeon Rice from Illinois, Jonathan Ogden, UCLA, and Cedric Jones, the defensive end from Oklahoma. Those are the guys that went before him. All pretty decent dudes. Simeon Rice won a Super Bowl with the <clears throat> with the Bucks. Kevin Hardy was a excellent linebacker for the Jaguars. Yep. That's a that's a good list of guys you just named off. And he was drafted before Terry Glenn, uh, the the Pats at number seven. Willie Anderson was ten with Cincinnati. Walt Harris, the cornerback, at number thirteen for the Bears, who went right before Eddie George at number fourteen with the Oilers. Marvin Harrison was nineteen. Ray Lewis was twenty six. These are all guys that came after Lawrence Phillips. Explain so, to me how, if you're Lawrence Phillips, you're going to the Rams. You got. Dick Vermeil, who is like the most emotional guy but loves his players, if you can't make it work with Dick Vermeil in the NFL, you're, it's over. There's no, there's no second. Like it's, he is the ultimate player's coach, and if it doesn't work with him, I mean, you're toast. You're totally toast. And he got a second chance with Vermeil. They brought him back after he got in trouble, and he, he ended up having one good year, and then he just sort of fell off the fell off the mind. Didn't he play? Did he go to the CFL? Yeah, he was in Montreal. He was actually there uh... – the year or two before I got there, and I remember the guys because I was like, hey, I'm like, Lawrence Phillips fucking played here. And they were like, I forget what their nickname was for him, but um, <laughs> they, they loved him. Like the offensive line actually loved him. Apparently he was a great guy and whatever. And uh, again, guys coming from certain backgrounds, they have hard times, they can't cope with certain things. That can also really play a role in what their career is like. A tragic ending. <clears throat> Very. Uh, yeah. For those who don't know, he passed away. Yeah. Um, okay, so again, notables. You know, we already talked Tim Couch, Achilles Smith. Those notables. Reggie Bush was a notable for me as well. Uh, second overall with the Saints, two thousand six. Uh, right behind Mario Williams, a defensive end from North Carolina State, who went to the Texans. Reggie Bush. Reggie Bush is still one of the top college football players I've ever seen play, um, and it, he had some you know sparks in the NFL but never to where the degree he should have like he's just a yeah. guy that had too much talent um that didn't pan out I'll give Reggie Bush credit in in this regard he um it was clear he wasn't going to be your your workhorse you know he wasn't going to get 25 carries a game with the Saints but he had he ended up having like you, there was flashes his rookie year where you're like oh oh this guy's going to be a problem for oh, yeah. the NFC 
But, you know, it didn't pan out. He wasn't the workhorse. He wasn't that durable. But he kind of reinvented himself as the years went on to, like, you know, he's a good third down back. He had decent hands. He could make the first guy miss. If you, if you get him the ball in space, he was, he, had, he was elusive enough. So I thought he did enough with his career to not make the t- my top 10. But I did see him on a few lists. And I'm glad that you, made, you mentioned him because he w- I, he's right on the borderline of, of bust. Just based on where he was drafted, but uh, it's good that you good that you named him. Sorry, he, yeah, no, he's a notable, and you know he's right along. Like Percy Harvin was almost a notable for me, um, and it was strictly because of his migraines and and really which kept him out of a lot of games. But I again, R- Reggie Bush is one of the most explosive players I've ever seen play. Percy Harvin is the most explosive player uh, I've ever seen play in college football. Still, in my opinion. Um, obviously semi-biased, but um, he would probably fit on my notables, but because he's a Gator, I'm not putting him on it. Okay, my actual top 10. Yes. Number 10 is a monster running back, went to the Giants, the 11th overall pick out of Wisconsin by the name of Ron Dane. (laughs) Yes, guy. Ron Dane was an absolute monster. He went over 2,000 yards and 20-plus touchdowns twice in his college career, freshman and senior. Uh, you know, he was the same uh, draft as uh, uh, Courtney Brown and those guys as well. Uh, but his college career finished up with uh, just over 1,200 carries for 7,125 yards and 71 touchdowns. Won the Heisman in 1999. You know, he even came in when he was with the Giants. They started off with that whole thunder and lightning, him and Tiki Barber. You know, they lost in the Super Bowl to the Ravens. I remember that. But... Ron Dane coming out of college was, you know, again, a guy that I was like, surefire, you got to take this guy. He's, you know, he's only about 5'10", but he's like 250, solid, trucking people, coming from the Big Ten, just used to pounding the rock. And, you know, didn't quite pan out for him. Is that one of those situations maybe that too many carries in college kind of wore him down a little bit prematurely? Uh, maybe it could also be that you're carrying behind Wisconsin offensive line that is notoriously stacked and they breed offensive linemen better than anybody other program probably in the the college between them Iowa um, they're always stacked and then you go to the Giants where their own offensive line is really not going to cut it Um, that'll wear on you pretty darn quick for sure all right number nine <clears throat> this guy, again, another elusive player that uh, has burnt my Florida Gators a couple of times and somebody who really stood out to me, um, drafted fourth overall by the Cincinnati Bengals in 2000. 2000? Okay. <clears throat> He's a wide receiver, and he goes by the name of Peter Warwick from oh, Florida State oh, yes, University. Guy. Florida State? Florida State. So uh, he was fourth overall. That was the Courtney Brown, LeVar Arrington, Chris Samuels that went before him. Um, you know, this kid was a Heisman front runner for the longest time until he got that uh, quote-unquote shoplifting charge, which was essentially uh, a cashier was giving him and his teammate Lavernius Coles um, basically $450 worth of, a, of clothing for, I think it was like $22 or something like that. So because of the amount of discount, it actually fell into uh, shoplifting or, or, thrift or something. Yeah, so they got you know suspended a couple of games and um, <clears throat> all that kind of stuff. Anyway, he played 
for Cincinnati for a bunch. You know, lasted about six years. He lost his his starting spot after getting hurt, and uh, TJ Huzmanzada had came in and actually had the best uh, season of his career, which just kind of pushed uh, Warwick aside. But from a receiver um, returner standpoint, if you guys Google YouTube Peter Warwick highlights, like I hate Florida State, hate Florida State. He was fun to watch. Like he was amazing. I remember him as uh, well. Obviously, I remember him playing the Steelers a few, a couple times a year for four years. But that team that TJ Hushmanzada took over for Brock, I'm telling you, if Kimo von Olhoffen doesn't roll up Carson Palmer's knee, the Bengals are in a Super Bowl that year. They were pretty good. They were very, very good. And no offense to John Kitna, but he's not Carson Palmer. They ended up scoring on that play. He threw a bomb, and it was a touchdown. But um, TJ Hushman's out of Pierre Warwick. I remember was on that team, and uh, he had fla- He always had flashes, like you know when he was when he, especially when he kick return. You're like, uh oh, this guy's oh, yeah. got you know. But just never put it together on the on the offensive end. Good call, good call, bro. All right, number eight. Well, let's see what happens. But you know why? They made this move because this could be once every now and then you get a guy like this. With the third pick in the 2012 NFL Draft, (laughs) the Cleveland Browns select Trent Richardson, running back, Alabama. So I tried to get all of these guys. I picked all their intros, and I couldn't find them all. So we're just getting in. That's Trent Richardson. You've already talked about Trent. Uh, Third overall to the Browns in 2012. Um, you know, went behind Andrew Luck at one, RG three at two, and Matt Khalil, the tackle at fourth. Um, this guy, his last season at Alabama. So Alabama is a running back factory, and that, I'm using that term uh, lightly, probably because he ran for just under 1,700 yards and had 21 touchdowns in his final season, averaged 130 yards a game. The last two seasons with the Browns, he had two with Indy. You know, I remember when he got traded from the Browns to Indianapolis, I thought, you know what? That's a great move for the Colts because I'm like, they've already got an established passing game. They got some weapons on the outside. So adding a guy like this on the inside to run the ball and kind of keep everybody honest is phenomenal. I was wrong. It didn't fucking work. (laughs) I watched videos and I've seen the breakdowns and Trent Richardson did not wasn't able to read. He was missing wide open holes and stuff. So there's a reason why it wasn't panning out. But when I talk about Alabama and college and what they had there, like his group when he was playing in 2010, it was Trent Richardson, Eddie Lacy, and Mark Ingram. <clears throat> there's a one before that that had Kenyon Drake, Al- or after that, that had Kenyon Drake, Alvin Kamara, Derek Henry, and TJ Yeldon, all on the practice field at the same time. A couple of them transferred after, like Alvin went to Tennessee and stuff. But that's the backfield that you have in college if you gave me that backfield in the pros, be set. All those guys are all those guys are uh, have been starting running back, running backs at some point in time, including Yeldon, who's got a sniff on a couple teams. But wow, wow, yeah. Yeldon's been on my fantasy team for a couple of years. He's not actually not too bad. Okay, number seven could not find the intro for number seven, but number seven went eighth overall in nineteen ninety six. He was a running back out of Michigan. He's a Canadian. Went to oh. Carolina. Tim Biaka Batuka. Batuka. So this guy from Vanier College in Montreal, obviously circa wherever he came from. Um, this guy, again, 
up here, we watch Big Ten football because it's on television. Do I like it? No, I don't. I'm an SEC homer. But the Michigan-Ohio State rivalry is one I watch all the time. And watching November 95 versus an unbeaten Ohio State team, he had 37 carries for 313 yards, and they won 31 to 23. Like he still holds the, the University of Michigan rushing record in a single season for 1,800 yards. This kid, again, there was a lot of coverage because he was Canadian. And it was right before I took off to school too, so it was really hot. I was getting recruited by Michigan at the time as well. So I was very in tune watching and seeing where this guy was going to go. And he goes eight and really doesn't pan out. Where'd he go? Carolina. Carolina expansion team. <sighs> but, a, but a good expansion team. A very yeah, good Yeah, at the time team. was very good. That made the NFC Conference Championship in 96. So that's impressive. So that was my number, what did I say, seven, right? I think that was six. No, it was seven. I have it on my list. Seven. Six. Okay. I, again, I don't have the soundbite for six. <laughs> but it was Courtney Brown, defensive end for the Browns uh, from Penn State, first overall in 2000. He was taken before his teammate, LeVar Arrington, um, which also goes to show like what Penn State's defense was like at the time when you have Courtney Brown on one and you have Arrington at the next level. Uh, pretty darn good. Uh, he was drafted before, obviously, Arrington, but Chris Samuels, the offensive tackle for Bama, who went third. Uh, we already talked Peter Work at fourth, but Jamal Lewis with fifth. Plaxico Burris, who uh, I, don't, I don't think he's a bust, but anyway, he's an eight. Burris? I wouldn't say he's a bust. I just, I'm throwing that out there because he's a stealer. And Brian Erlocker, who went ninth. So these are all guys that came after uh, Courtney Brown. And... Uh, Courtney Brown just did it. What was his career? What was his, uh, did he have a long career? He was, he had, he showed flashes in Cleveland. Uh, flashes like Johnny Manziel flashes. <laughs> How more like hot flashes. Right. Like he had, so let me just see here. He was only with the Browns for 2000, 2004. So he played four seasons and then he had two with the Broncos and actually with the Broncos, they actually had, I believe a Super Bowl appearance. Um, I think they lost in the Super Bowl, but uh, I think he made an appearance at one point there too. Uh, no, they lost. Uh, yeah, they lost the Super Bowl to. Uh, no, they lost to Pittsburgh in the AFC Championship. Who Pittsburgh went to the uh, Super Bowl and eventually won it. So they lost. Two thousand five. Yeah. But uh, Corny Brown's. Yeah, his career. He only played sixteen games one time. Um, which was his first year. After that, he only played, he played five, 11, 13. He had two games in 2004. Anyway, he massed 19 sacks total for his complete career, which was six years. Um, you know what I mean? Like well, you're was, not, you're not living up to it. He had 69 tackles in year one, but then he was 21, 41, 37, two and 24. Like this is a first overall pick. This is the epitome of what a bust is. He was on, on most of my draft board busts. Uh, I I couldn't place him. I, I just remember him in the early 2000s having some half-decent games against Pittsburgh. But, you know, I, he's a good guy. He, here's a question for you, Brock. Here's a guy who's drafted out of college as as what? Is he a run stopper? Is he because he, is he defensive end? Is he, you just assume he's got to rush the passer? Like, did he get the right coaching? In, again, it's Cleveland. You know, a history of, of draft busts, you know, of poor coaching. So is he a guy as a product of his, of his environment get it, once he gets to the NFL? Like, what, what do you do with a guy? Is he a run stopper? Look, I'll, let's be clear. And 
I've I've made comments on Facebook posts within these groups that we have, uh, and I'm I'm trying to be as uh, as straight as possible in terms of these guys who are bus is not because they suck. Football above every other sport, you need to find the right combination of your talent, your skill sets, your system that you're going into. And the chemistry you have with the other players in your unit, <clears throat> along with coaching. But if you don't have those, if it's not a perfect mix, all the Hall of Famers have that perfect mix. You know what I mean? You can't, yeah, if, well, you're, sure. if you're, uh, you know, again, if you're Tim Tebow and your skill set is one thing and they're trying to stick this square peg into a round hole in the quarterback position for their system you already you lose that therefore you're gone whether or not the 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 chemistry and camaraderie and stuff is there with the rest of your unit and the coaching's there if the system doesn't fit to what your skill set is you're already not going to be there i couldn't agree more and the best example for me is tom brady if tom brady doesn't doesn't go to new england and doesn't play in a system where it's, you know, Antoine Smith is running the ball 50 times and they've got, they're throwing to their tight ends and all their receivers are just short little guys who run like, you know, three, three yard slants because that's what they had, right? Troy Brown and all those guys, David Patton, they're all three yard slant guys. If you throw Tom Brady with the 1999 uh, Cincinnati Bengals with guys like Warwick and Kajana Carter and Achilles Smith and the, the lack of coaching, does he have the career he has? Right. Is he, go, is he now throwing to guys that are uh, their skill set is the, the double move or even the triple move when they get open, not the first and create space where the ball's out of your hands? No, I just don't think it is. And I've always wanted to see Brady because I'm full believer that Brady is a product of his environment to a, a great degree. I want to see him in a different system. The problem now <clears throat> is that he could very well be successful in Tampa Bay because he has done so much in that system that now he's at an age where he's dictating a lot of the pace. So he's not going into a system that's like, hey, Tom, we need you to do this. He's like, I'm going here because I'm telling you I need a system that's like this. I need to bring in these guys, hence Gronk uh, and everybody else. And I feel like we're going to see a Buccaneers team that it looks a lot more like how the Patriots and how Brady used to run shit. And I think so. He's he's past that point where he has to make himself fit into a different system. He's now got enough power to make the system fit into him. So the what are they got what are they going to be called? The Tampa Bay Gronkineers are going to be yeah. <laughs> very much a, a product of the Patriots and, and that system. And, and Brady knows it, so he's going to be bringing that. And I, I would just to put a just a, not to spend too much time on this. Oh, you want to say, put say, a bow on it? I want. I didn't say that. You wanted to. You wanted progress. To. Progress. <laughs> <laughs> the um, I, I, he's in a he's in a win win situation because if he doesn't succeed, he's forty two or forty four or whatever. Yeah. There's a built in excuse. So if you're gonna do it, you do it now. And if you do succeed, you're a look. I told you so. Plus, I'm forty two years old. I'm a hero. You don't succeed. Yep. Hey, I'm forty two. I should have retired a couple of years ago. I ended up milking a couple more years out of uh, out of my body, and that's that. So, you know, he's I, there's definitely a strategy behind all this. Um, I think the winner ends up being t- uh, New England if they actually finish ten and six or eleven and five. I think New England looks a lot smarter at the end of the day, but only time will tell. This this is one season where I'm so looking forward to every other game plus the Steelers versus mm-hmm. 
It was a foregone conclusion the last 20 years, Brock. There was no chance Pittsburgh was getting by New England. And the two times that they did, Brady got hurt the one year and went. Matt Castle went 11-5. and five. Brady was hurt that year. Pittsburgh went to the Super Bowl. Uh, the, year that, the other year uh, that Pittsburgh went to the Super Bowl, New England, like half the guys got hurt like three weeks before the, uh, the playoffs and they ended up losing to the Colts. So, I mean, it's been all New England for 20 years. Do you know how hard that is to be an AFC fan for, of a team not named New England? No, I don't. You know hard? Yeah. It's been it's been impossible. Next next draft bust. All right, next draft bust because we got to um, kind of pick this up a little bit here. Yeah, uh, so that was six. That was uh, Courtney Brown. We Courtney got Brown. way off it. Okay, hold on. with the uh, first choice in the 2002 NFL Draft, <laughs> the Houston Texans select David Carr, quarterback from Fresno <laughs> State. <laughs> All right, so he's my number five. David Carr, quarterback, Fresno State, first overall, Houston Texans, two thousand two, their first ever draft pick. Um, <laughs> David Carr was known in Pittsburgh as Troy Polamalu's bitch for <laughs> as long as he played. It was awesome. Hey, great, great pick. Yeah, he didn't. Uh, I mean, <laughs> you look at the guy's stats. His senior season, he was three forty four completions out of five hundred thirty three attempts. So about a 64.5 percentage completion for 4,839 yards, 46 touchdowns, and nine interceptions. I, hard to pass that up. How, you know what I mean? Yeah. Even though it's Fresno State, it's amazing. You know, But he didn't do much. He had five seasons with Houston. They acquired Matt Schaub from Atlanta at one point. They released Carr. Other than that, he was a journeyman for the rest of it, for whatever. Um, yeah, that's... Uh, <laughs> That's about it for him. All right. We got uh, number four. Oh, do I not have a thing for number four? Damn it. <clears throat> All right. Number four. Maybe I do. Hold on. Yes. With the uh, third choice in the 2006 NFL draft, the Tennessee Titans select Vince Young. Uh. University of Texas. <laughs> All right. Vince Young. Third, 2006, you heard that. Uh, he went behind Mario Williams and Reggie Bush. Uh, 2005, Young essentially single-handedly won the national championship in arguably the best college football game of all time. This is forever known for me as my honeymoon game because Ange and I were in Jamaica. We watched the first half of the little sports bar. You know, it's a later game at that point. She goes, we go back, she goes to sleep. I watched the second half on the edge of the bed with the TV. I hated USC. USC had that powerhouse team with Liner and Bush and Lendell White and Clay Matthews and Dwayne Jared, Ryan Khalil, Brian Cushing, Ray Maluaga. Maluaga? Maluaga? Malaluga. Malaluga. Like, these guys were stacked. And watching Texas and Vince Young pull it out in the fashion that he did, I remember to this day how hard I celebrated without making a freaking noise because I didn't want to wake her up, but I was so pumped. Anyway, it was an amazing, amazing game. He's a Rose Bowl MVP. His number's been retired by the University of Texas. He holds most of the quarterback records in Texas. He was the 2006 Rookie of the Year in the NFL. So it started off great. Like you said, you have a great year. He's a rookie of the year. He actually was a comeback player of the year in 2009, but he was basically out of the league by 2011. He left the Titans overall with a 30 and 17 record, which is pretty good. 
you know, I, I would take that. Um, you know, we had some disagreements with Coach Fisher and how they were running stuff and whatever, and he ended up playing a couple of games with the Eagles later on too. But that's essentially it. But for a guy, Vince Carter was, um, I don't know what to even say. He was just on a different level. So he had so much ability, so much talent. Again, maybe it's the system. Maybe he didn't pick up the reads enough because he, he depended on his athletic ability. But let's say Vince Young goes in and runs an offense that Lamar Jackson is running right now. Vince Young is still playing and is still probably doing as good as Lamar Jackson, if not better, in my opinion. He is the same sort of quarterback. He's just not in the right system. You know what? Vince Young was the guy that I was going to bring up as a notable. I was just waiting for you to finish your list. Uh, I'm glad you brought him up because, you know, he, that's a player who I think accuracy was some, was an issue. Um, his his follow-through on his throws, the ball would sail on him. So he always he never underthrew anybody. He was always sailing the ball over guys. He did play, I think he was a backup to Nick Foles the Super Bowl year. Had a, had a game or two for, uh, for them during that time. May have been the year before, actually. But he did have another sniff of the NFL. Actually had a tryout with the Rough Riders. Yeah, that's right. Was, was, was yeah, it the that, Eagles was were it like the 11, 2011 or whatever, yeah. Time flies. Yeah. But, uh, oh, that, uh, sorry, that might have been when Mike Vick was there. That would be more likely, yes. Okay, yeah. Um, he, was with, he came out and tried out for the Rough Riders as recent as two or three years ago. And they also brought in Trent Richardson. The Saskatchewan's uh, anyway. That's a, it's a whole other podcast. But they end up bringing up these NFL guys, these sort of uh, guys who've been left for dead, and see what they got. So he didn't even come out of training camp, uh, and that was the year that they had no QB. So Vince Young, interesting guy. Heard him talk many, many times on uh, in the media, and uh, good guy, good guy. Just uh, short career, and hard to put a finger on it. The system failed him. All right, number three. Chris, and momentarily, the Green Bay Packers will make it official. First round, <laughs> tackle Tony Mandarich, Michigan State. Next up, Detroit There was no Lions. doubt about that one, certainly. Now, we have just been to Irving, Texas, and heard Jerry Jones, the man who's going to be paying Troy Aikman $11.5 million over the next six years, talk about his selection of Troy Aikman. Now, Tony Mandarich, the, the devotee of Guns N' Roses, the 300-and-some-odd-pound offensive tackle, the man the likes of whom we have never seen. The man of the likes we have never seen. This guy Physically. was a combine machine. Now, he was recruited at Michigan State by Nick Saban. Nick Saban recruited this guy to Michigan State, uh, and his tape in Michigan State was great. He was also sauced up to the tits, but the draft combine, he was 330 pounds. He ran a 4.65 40-yard dash a 10-3 standing broad jump, a 30-inch vertical, and he did 39 reps on the 225. Like, to be a combine stud at that size was amazing. And again, his film was very, very good. Now, the thing is, you get off the sauce, I guess, and that's what happens. You don't really perform. This guy challenged Mike Tyson to a fight. Did you know that? <laughs> I didn't know that. <clears throat> yeah, that would not go over this very guy- well. Go if you Google Tony Mandarich on the cover of SI, it might have been eighty-eight or eighty-nine. He's you just don't see offensive linemen that, that chiseled, like chiseled, chiseled, like chest is huge. Maybe to his detriment for his position, like you need flexibility, right? As an offensive lineman, especially above up, uh, you know, from the from the chest up, you got to have that push power. 
and you need that the wide base flexibility in your lower body. He was so malproportioned, like he was just an incredible bulk, but he didn't have the the speed with his legs. His hands were slow, his, so he clearly was just like he was chiseled to the tits. But like, I, I mean, those combine he, numbers stand out. So he was doing something fairly decent that he needed to do. But um, the reason I, I have him so high was one because he was a Canadian <clears throat> out of Oakville, Ontario. Uh, you know, coming out of Michigan State, there was a lot of, of press still. I was just probably starting football, uh, you know, a couple of years before that, playing offensive line. You know, I remember being called the the boss because I had this the blonde brush cut thing that the boss had. But then <laughs> Mandrich was always on there. And so, you know, you kind of follow guys like that. This guy, you know, Troy Aikman, number one. So from a draft standpoint, from a top five picks, Troy Aikman was number one. Hall of Famer. Tony Mandrich, number two. Not so much. Barry Sanders went number three. Hall of Famer. Derek Thomas went number four. Hall of Famer. Deion Sanders went number five. Hall of Famer. Like, from a top five perspective, you say, fuck, did we ever screw that up from a Packers standpoint? The other reason I have him so high up is, is because I think of not only did his career kind of end up shitty, but imagine Barry Sanders played in Green Bay instead of Detroit, a team that had some success and had maybe arguably a better offense, a better offensive line. What would Barry Sanders' career had looked like? Would he have retired at the time he did out of frustration more than anything probably because he was tired of getting beat up? Like I'm just curious to see what that would have been like. That's a great question. That, that year, 88, 89, the Green Bay was starting to make a, make a turn. They were terrible in the 80s, terrible in the 80s. But they had the magic man, Don Mikowski, was their quarterback. He got hurt and Favre got his, his break. But you imagine Barry Sanders in the backfield with Brett Favre right. and a Sterling Sharp, uh, Shannon's brother. Yeah. You know, there was they had some talent. And then, you know, later on, they got Mark Chimura and some of these other guys. But, like, you know, the initial team was, was, was pretty good without much running. So that had been pretty wild. Wow. Okay. You just you just named off you just named off four four guys who maybe well maybe not Aikman but Sanders and and uh, the both Sanders guys might be the best that ever they ever played the position. Yeah, Derek Thomas is right up there too. But yeah, Derek Thomas. Oh, sad that his career got cut short. Might have been the greatest linebacker ever to play. All right, number two. One year, I know, it's so old. The uh, second choice in the draft, the San Diego Chargers select quarterback, Washington State University, Brian Leaf. Yeah, I could not find it in stereo for the life of me, so I apologize to everybody, <laughs> but that was Ryan Leaf. <laughs> Leaf getting picked by second overall to the Chargers in 1998. Um, you know, the whole, again, you've gone over it between him and Manning, yada, yada. Um, you think of that... Uh, draft pick after Manning and Leaf. So you say, okay, what could you have? There's a couple other guys that could be considered bust too with Andre Wadsworth was a defensive end from Florida State who went number three to the Arizona Cardinals and he only lasted, I think, for like two seasons, 98 to 2000. Uh, then Charles Woodson was fourth. But another guy who was kind of a notable to me too that I was going to put on was a, was Curtis Enos, the the running back from or Penn Ennis, State. from Penn State who went to the uh, fifth to the Bears. Uh, he had some real good stats too. that guy. I remember watching him in a lot of those Big Ten televised games, but he was another guy that probably could be a notable in terms of bus for me, but that was Ryan Leaf, which brings us to the number one. Advance with the first pick in the 2007 NFL Draft, 
The Oakland Raiders select quarterback Jamarcus Russell. <laughs> Amazing. Oh, Jamarcus dear. Russell. And I got it. I didn't Google it. I didn't find out exactly when it happened, but I remember and again, time flies now. So maybe it's three years or so where I remember watching a game of the Green Bay Packers and they were talking about Aaron Rodgers, who was a perennial pro bowler, um, uh, had won a Super Bowl already. You know, like Aaron Rodgers was Aaron Rodgers. And at that point, I remember they said it. They said, you know what? Today's the day Aaron Rodgers now surpasses Jamarcus Russell for most earnings, career earnings in the NFL. Oh, my God. And I was like, whoa, whoa. And I had to rewind it. I was like, are you kidding me? But Russell came in in the last – he was in before Aaron Rodgers, and that was when they stopped those absurd rookie contracts. He held out and signed six years, $68 million with 31 and a half (laughs) guaranteed. This was in 2007. By 2009, he finished the season with the lowest quarterback rating, the lowest completion percentage, the fewest touchdowns, the fewest yards of all the NFL-eligible quarterbacks. And he was released in May 2010. And they had a grievance on him, too, because they were like, hey, they're trying to get $9.75 million back, that uh, whatever, and they're like, hey, that was guaranteed. Nothing you could do about it. $31 million guaranteed, and he had just surpassed – Aaron Rodgers had just surpassed them. Given the, the the diversity of their um, their career paths is crazy. That's disgusting, almost criminal. That, uh, he just he, he just fleeced the Raiders for thirty one million bucks. Oh yeah, he got Demarcus uh, Russell. He oh. was good in, in college. I mean, his last his junior season, you know, before he got drafted, thirteen games. He had you a know, big arm. Twenty three for three forty two, sixty seven point eight percent completion percentage. He went for uh, just over 3,000 yards, 28 touchdowns, eight interceptions in the SEC, which has, you know, got phenomenal defenses, especially secondaries. And, you know, he lit him up. So, and he was a big body. I mean, nobody thought he was going to be 300 pounds big body at some point. But, you know what I mean? Like, it, anyway, there's a, you can only do so much from a scouting perspective. Um, and on talent and you use all the information. So all these busts have substantiations behind them as to why they're picking them. And I get it. It's just, again, once you get to the next sex, to the next level, if you don't have the mix of those four, your talent, your scheme, your, your chemistry and your coaching, you just, it's not going to be successful. Oh, that's it. And you know, uh, he, he did try to make a comeback. Uh, he explained himself in terms of, but you know, it's too little too late after you've gained that much weight at the quarterback position. I mean, that's Jared Lorenzen weight. I mean, that's, he well, was, well, Jared Lorenzen on. weight was 500 pounds. So let's not get carried away. What, what was Mark? What was Russell? Russell was 292 or some matter up to, he's probably 300 pounds. Let's say three, that's a 200 pound difference between Jared Lorenzen weight wow. and that's incredible. <clears throat> But that is a great it's still, segue. It's still incredible, though. Because we're going we're gonna to go out, and we're going to go out to, hey, it's COVID-19. You know, I have not been moving as much as I should be. Scale is not, not great. I feel Jamarcus Russell. I feel Jerry Lorenzo. We're going out to this song. And, uh, yeah, we will be back next week with some topics. We might throw some stuff out on uh, Facebook and see what you guys think of our, our top bus and if we forgot anybody. Uh, you got any last words, Pep? Uh, not really, buddy. Just keep staying safe and healthy. And, uh, we're just going to keep plugging along with our, uh, with our podcast. You bet. Any suggestion for topics, you guys reach out. We're going out to. 
for those who don't know, this is not Michael. Your butt is wide, well mine is too. Just watch your mouth, or I'll sit on you. The word is out, better treat me right. Cause I'm the king of cellulite. Ham on, ham on, ham on whole wheat. Alright. My zippers bust, my buckles break. I'm too much man for you to take. The pavement cracks when I fall down. I've got more chins in Chinatown. But I never used a phone booth, I never seen the toes. All right. Have a good evening. <laughs> Snack time. <laughs> <laughs>